All right. Good morning, almost still. <laughs> How's everybody doing this morning? Wonderful. All right. That's good. I, I believe you all. I believe you all. <laughs> uh, please open your Bibles to Romans, the book of Romans, please. I'm glad you're here with us this morning. If this is your first time here or visiting, uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel. Uh, we teach line by line through the Bible here. Every jot and tittle, we go over the Hebrew, the Greek, and everything in between, okay? Uh, the Aramaic as we, we come to that. Um, I just want to be, I'm sure I'm not the first, but I just want to welcome you. I want you to know this is a family. A second service, you know, each, each service has a different personality. First service, you know, they're here early and, you know, it's, it's, it's great. And then second service, you know, the personality come in, it's family. Everybody's family, first and second service. I just love it. I just love all of you and I love how God knits um, just the unity of the body of Christ, because it's one Holy Spirit, it's one Lord, it's one God. And I'm just grateful for that. So with that, I, I'd ask everybody, if you have a smartphone this morning, take, go ahead and take your smartphone out. I don't normally do this, but we'll do this this one time. If you have a smart, now if you don't have a smartphone, and it's, it's a non-smartphone, I won't call it a dumb phone. I, I, I'm tempted to call it a dumb phone. I, Somebody here has one. She's like, I have that. Okay, I won't say that. But if you have a non-smartphone, okay, do me a favor. Open it up, log in, put your key in. First, mute it, please. Mute it. God may be calling, just not right now. So go ahead and mute that, right? And then what I'd ask you to do is go to Facebook, if you have a Facebook thing. Bring up Calvary Chapel Harrisburg. If you have never done that, go ahead and do that. If you've done it, please do it anyway. Why am I asking you to do that this morning? Not because you can just follow it or like it on Calvary Chapel, Harrisburg, Weshar, and, and we're going to get information to you that way, devotions and things like that. Because the Lord led me last night as I was praying for the flock here this morning and just praying in this new year what God would have us to do. There's so many lost and dying in this world, and they don't know the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They just don't. And, you know, when I was at Jubilee Day, last time we went to Jubilee Day, and we, we, had, we had our children out, and they were out, and they were sharing Jesus. And I remember, uh, 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 I think it was Logan. My, my, at that time, he might have been nine or eight. I can't remember. And he went, and he said, do, do you know Jesus loves you? Do you know about Jesus? And he went to give him a little gift. And there was a boy that was probably maybe a year or two older. Maybe he was 10 or 11. And he said, I, I don't know who you're speaking about, Jesus. Jesus who? And that was the first time for my son it became so apparent that there are so many people that are growing up today that really don't know who Jesus Christ, or I've never heard his name. It's not that they're rejecting Jesus. They've never been introduced to the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of love, the Jesus of truth. And that's when it became real for me. And, I, and, I, and so a lot of times during the week, I'll often say to everyone here, I say, what are we doing to walk out the Great Commission? And Facebook works. So all of a sudden, they were just, that's the recorded teachings going across Facebook right now. So they, they would go there, and, um, and, and I said, you know what? We're going to put up a year invited, because we're all called to be evangelists, aren't we? We're called to get the word of God out. You will see a post up there that says, you're invited. And it talks about the two services. We all are called to the work of an evangelist, not just a pastor, not just a teacher, not just, we're all called to that ministry. I would encourage everyone to take your phone. If you will see that right now, click share. Share that on your timeline. That as people turn around and see your timeline, maybe you have all kinds of things up there, the sports scores, the, you know, the NFL, what's happened, your team's in the playoff, your team's not in the playoff, whatever. They're going to see an invitation 
to the love of Jesus Christ. Or hopefully they might click even on the website and listen to a teaching. And when the word of God goes forward, you never know what it'll do into the heart of the believer or unbeliever. So my encouragement is do that this morning. And then, uh, you know, every week as you see those teachings comes up or the videos, go ahead and share them out after service. Do the work of an evangelist. That's where it starts. And if you don't have a smartphone, you know what? You got something even better. God's given you two ears and one mouth to listen and to speak his holy truth. Amen? All right, go ahead and silence your phones and put your phones away, but I would like to ask everyone to do that. Also, if we're going to have closings, winter, weather, things like that, we'll also post it up there just so everyone's aware. So it's a good way to get a notification. Some people don't have that yet. Father God, we come before you here this morning, Lord Jesus. This, this is your building and this is your body. You've assembled together here this morning. We, we don't know that if everyone here believes or doesn't believe, God, it, that's not pertinent right at the moment. Jesus, what is, is your truth, your word. Lord, we don't come here to hear from a man. God, we come here to hear from you, Jesus, your truth, your love. Oh, God, pour out your grace here this morning. Allow your Holy Spirit to fill us again, or fill us for the first time, Lord, if we've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Do a work in us, Lord, because we can do nothing good of our own. I can do nothing good of my own, Lord. Jesus, thank you for what you've done on the cross as we are going to celebrate communion here, a memorial to you this morning. Our eyes and our attention, Lord, needs to be on you and you alone. Regardless of the troubles or the cares that lie ahead of us, Lord, in this new year, for there'll be great joy, but Lord, for those that are believers in Christ, we know oppression, oppression and affliction come. But we know that he who's in us is greater than he who is in the world. So, Jesus, we look to you, and we thank you for your word, and we, we pray that your spirit, Lord, would lead here today, and I would get out of the way, Jesus. I pray this in your, your name, almighty God, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. All right. We're picking back up in Romans chapter 5. Remember, Romans uh, was written or inspired by Paul, the apostle Paul, as he was living in Corinth at the time for about a year and a half for making his way to Jerusalem. And so he had been seeing everything. I mean, everything under the sun he was seeing in Corinth, temple prostitution. I mean, all types of wicked, evil things. I bet Paul would look around in the days we're living and say, wow, there's a lot of similarity today, you know? Evil being called good and good being called evil. Well, as we've been making our journey, he took chapters one to three, and what he did is he unified the entire, uh, all of humanity in sin. He said, look, is there anyone that's righteous? He says, no, not one. He says, is there anyone that's really, really good in the term of the way we'd use it as a moralist? In other words, I'm a good person. I haven't murdered somebody. And then we talked about how Jesus said, but in your heart, if you've hated someone or been angry, or even said raka in the, in the Hebrew or the Greek that way, he says, you've, you've committed murder in essence because your, the motives of your heart were not pure. Well, God just changed everything when he did that. I mean, God just, man, I don't know about you, but I was like right to the heart. The first time I read that, I was like, wow, Lord. So it's not only by the things I do, but it's even my conscience, my mind betrays me. 
And I had never reconciled that that was your truth, Jesus. That's why you came to give your true love and to do what you did. You went into synagogues and you opened the prophet, the, the, the book of Isaiah, and you would read from truth and say, I am he who was prophesied to you before the very foundations of the world. And it's my message, the message of the gospel of truth, the gospel of love, the gospel of grace that will set you free and you will be free indeed. That's the character and love of Jesus Christ. Paul has been building this as almost a court case so that people would understand. And then he went into this chapter four we read last week where he kind of took a, almost a right turn because he had left off in, in really chapter three, verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, saying that he is just and righteous because we as sinners, those that have sinned, deserve what? We deserve the penalty of that. And he's a just and righteous God. And he would not be wrong in telling anyone that if you've committed sin, the wages of sin is death. Because that's his discernment. He's the king and he gets it. It's not a republic of heaven. It's not a democracy of heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven. And he's a king and he's on the throne. His will, his way. So if we begin to understand that, and, and, and can you imagine for the Jew who had the law, who put themselves under Abraham. Well, our father's Abraham. We're saved because we know him. And, and oh, by the way, we got circumcised. Paul says, no, 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 hold on. The law doesn't save. The law testifies. He says, it's like a stop sign. If you didn't have a stop sign and you blow through it, you didn't know you committed a, a, you know, a, a motor traffic infraction. I put a stop sign up, you see it, and then you blow through it. Now what? Now you know you're guilty because you know you willingly did that. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I'm a good person. I don't do anything bad. I, I never murdered anybody. I've not, I really don't even really have ill thoughts. I, I try to, I don't lust. I don't, I don't, you know, I do my thing. I go to work. I'm a hard worker. I've done the best I can. You know, things are good. But who are you comparing yourself to when you do that? You're comparing yourself to what you can see, to people. By the way, the Bible already tells us those people you're comparing yourself to, they're already what? Guilty, sinners. So you're comparing yourself to, who should you be comparing yourself to? Jesus, the righteous God. When you compare yourself to him, is it right that Paul says, but we all fall short of the glory of God? Amen, amen. I, I sit back and I'm, I just, I'm humbled by that because that's the truth of the gospel, that there's no one, no matter how good of a life that we think we've lived, we fall short because we've had a pure motive. And if that wasn't enough, we're also told that in Genesis chapter 3, that there's this thing called sin nature or original sin. And before, <laughs> I laugh, I, I think of this, but when Adam was put into the garden and he was having fellowship with God, this is a literal man and it was a literal garden. And as he was having fellowship with God, God says, Adam, okay, I want to talk to you for a minute. Adam said, okay, Lord. Adam was immortal at the time. Death had not existed. Sin had not existed. There was no sin. So he was immortal, much like angels are immortal. God is eternal. We want to get our, our vocabulary correct. God was never created. He always existed. He was eternal. But, but man was created immortal, and so was the angels, right? Day six. So he says, Adam, come on over here. Adam says, okay. He comes over. He says, you see that tree? He doesn't point to the tree. He says, you see that tree? He says, that's the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil. He says, if you eat of that tree, he says, surely you're going to die. Talking about death will enter and sin will enter in. 
You, you know, Adam, like any one of us, what's Adam thinking? Come on. I wonder what that fruit tastes like. What, God, what tree exactly in this garden here? Because there's trees all over the garden. I'm tending to it. What tree am I not supposed to eat? And God says, that tree right over there. And what do you think Adam's like? Doing, you know, he's pointed right at that tree, looking right at that tree going, why does that fruit look better than every other fruit? The one thing I couldn't have. Now, we know nothing about that, right? The minute I tell you, put a candy bar or whatever your, your inclination is, and I put it in front of you and says, you're on a diet. You can't eat that right now. Don't you crave food you have never eaten before at that moment? The minute you start the diet, you're like, what happened? I'm hungry all over again, and I just ate. Because it's what you can't have. There's something in the flesh that wages after that. And it's not good. Well, Adam ate of that fruit, and so did Eve. And he became like God in that he knew good and evil. And at that point, sin had entered in. This is all setting the stage. We know this contextually, but for those that might be joining us for the first time or, or maybe don't know the context of where we all are or why the human condition, why God could say that none, none are righteous. It's because we're born into sin. Which is why Jesus Christ, the God-man, had to come outside of creation, into creation, that he would be without sin, that he could become sin for us, that we might become what? The righteousness of God. Do you see why, why it had to be done that way? Well, as we get to chapter 5 here, and, and I kind of mentioned 4 was sort of this right turn, because chapter 5 really picks up on chapter 3, verse 31. It picks up right after that. And chapter 4 was sort of like, thank you, Paul. I appreciate the additional detail, and thank you. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, because he said, look, it's not any different from Abraham. It's not any different for David. He says, both of those men, it wasn't because of, you know, who they were or how good they were. He says, no, it was by faith, and it was accounted to them for righteousness. So he kind of made that settled and settled that story so that everybody can say, look, we're all disqualified technically, but we're also all available to be reached by the love of Jesus Christ because when he came, he came for everyone. And his work on the cross didn't sanctify a group of people that would believe any one of us in our sins and trespasses could be set in right relationship with God. So it was an important veer to the right, if I can say it that way. It was important. But he's building that case. Now we get to the application. Christ is needed. Christ is our Savior. But faith isn't something we just do one time. It's something we live by. And it's going to produce something inside of us. We're going to go into a little bit of the Greek today. If you're not uh, taking notes normally, I'd encourage you to take notes. There's no books in the back. It's important. We're going to have to get into the grammar a little bit here. Because we can use a word. Unlike English, I can say hope. But depending on how I use hope in context, if you speak another language, maybe a Latin language, you can, Spanish, something like that, you understand prefixes and suffix matter. They, they, they connote and they change the meaning of the sentence or the use of the word. The same thing in the Greek. If I put something in a certain order, the object of that order matters because it tells me what the, where the emphasis is being placed on. We'll see that in the glory of God as an example. So let's jump in here this morning, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, after he's made his case so far, having been justified, again, he makes sure everybody knows, by faith, we, everyone included, 
have peace. Now, I'd ask you to circle that peace there. In some of your notes in your Bibles, you may have a, a note or a reference at the Bible, at the bottom, excuse me, of your Bible. Uh, I'll make it simple. There's, we don't have time this morning. There's no reason to go into a scholarly debate about this. In some of the original manuscripts or some of the older manuscripts, you have it saying, let us have, compared to having. Now, depending on where you want to kind of narrow into this debate, I don't think it needs to be a debate. I think Paul up to this point has already made his point clear. He's now giving us application. He's telling us what we have in faith in Christ. That's what I believe. And I, I would encourage you to be Bereans. You search the scripture. You can go read the, the commentators. But at the end of the day, it wouldn't make sense to me for us to say, oh, by the way, you've been justified by faith. Uh, God, let us have peace now. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand that. Uh, by having faith in Christ, he tells us that we receive that, pay, that peace because we're justified, we're redeemed, we've been set in right relationship, we've been given favor with God in that relationship. That's what happened on that spiritual transaction on the cross. What we couldn't see in the spirit realm that happened, you do realize there's a spirit realm, right? It's, the battle's not of flesh and blood, Right? It's with principalities and powers, Ephesians 6. So when we read this here, he's talking, and I believe it's, it's better put, as, as my translation has it, we have peace with God. And the reason we have that peace is what? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's nothing we could have done ourselves. Again, it's something we receive, much like we receive his righteousness. We gave him sin. <laughs> he gave us righteousness. That, what, is that fair? You don't want fair. That's not fair. That's not fair, God. That's not fair for Jesus. We don't want fair. Fair is the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. Oh my, who doesn't want a good gift? Yeah, it's the gift of God, right? Amen. So he tells us, through whom also we have access by faith into grace into which we stand. He's, he's declaring, you do have access into that holy of holies with God the Father. Nothing can separate you. Now, for the Jew, if you were a Jew and you heard this, this would have been heavy, man. This would have been liberating, but at the same time, challenging. Because you never could have gone into that Holy of Holies. Only a chief priest on the Day of Atonement could go in twice. Once to offer sacrifices for himself, and the second time to offer sacrifices for the nation. Leviticus, right? Chapter 16. We're, in, we're actually in that book on Wednesdays. Other than that, you were not to go into the Holy of Holies, to the very mercy seat. But here we see that through faith, through grace, we, you and I, can enter into relationship, to enter into that relationship as close as and near as we want to be to Jesus. You and I can have that. And there's nothing that can separate us from that. Isn't that wonderful? That's the covenant, the new covenant that God, Jesus, has given us. That we can enter into that there's no man needed. I don't need to go into a box. I can go to Jesus. I can come. He says, there's no mediator but the man Christ Jesus. I can come directly to God on my knees and say, Lord, I love you and I need you. You are my everything. And I thank God for that. He says that we have access, access to that throne, access to God, into this grace, his grace in which we stand. And what do we do the first time? You're going to see this twice in this passage. We rejoice. If you're not feeling a spirit of rejoicing right now, friend, you're missing something. Check your pulse. 
You're missing something. Are you alive right now? Do you understand this hope? And if you're not, if you're not a believer in Christ, if you don't know him and this is all new to you and you're hearing this, man, get excited because this is for you. This is an invitation for you right now personally. Do you know Jesus? If you don't, you can. And he wants to give you his very best. He doesn't want to give you something to settle on. He doesn't do that. So let's look at what, he, what he's going to give us, even though, man, we don't deserve nothing, but he's, he's so good. He's a good dad. He says, and rejoice in what? Hope. El peace is the actual Greek word here. El peace. And where is it from? This is, remember, I told you we're going to just deconstruct the Greek a little bit. This is a, a dependent object, what you'd call it in the Greek, which means that that word hope, part of its connotation, understanding, declared by what comes at, we would call it a suffix, or the object of that. In the English, we would say it that way. So what is the object here? The glory of, underline it in your Bible, the glory of what? God. So where do we get our hope or our, that word hope, in the Greek means joyful, expectant, you know, confidence. Where do we get this from? From the glory of God. It's dependent not on you and me. That's what we see in the Greek. It's dependent on what? God. It's dependent on Jesus. He gave it to us right in the language. Sometimes we miss that with translation, but that's what it meant in the original language. He's, he's saying, that hope, that's from the glory of God. That's what Paul was telling us through direct revelation of the Holy Spirit. In verse three, he says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Well, <laughs> thelipsis in the Greek, that word thelipsis. Now, it's important. We're going to see that two times in this passage right here. It's plural. Even though one time you look in your Bible, don't look at me, look in your Bible, you'll see one time it's used, it says tribulations, plural. And then the next time you see it being used, it says tribulation, singular. No such thing. That word, thelipsis, is plural, and it's used plural. So it, it, what's that mean? Troubles. So he's saying, and troubles, and troubles. Now he's not talking about the great trouble, the, the, what we talk, the great tribulation, the great wrath to come, right? That's, he's talking about troubles. Well, wait a minute. Does that mean that Christians have troubles? <laughs> oh, we could all laugh if you've been born again for more than a week, <laughs> right? What do we, I, I, I despise when people take a, un, uh, an unbeliever or non-believer and they, oh, you need Jesus, which is very true. I don't despise that part. But your life is, you're, you, everything's going to be bliss. Right. No. Jesus said, you'll face oppression and affliction for they hated him and they will turn around and hate us also. He said that. Jesus said that. It's important to teach truth from the pulpit be, for obvious reasons, but also because when you do that, it's almost like a bait and switch to somebody. Better for them to hear the truth and know, okay, this is the walk. This is the reality of my walk in Christ. Because when you understand the reality, it's not troubles for no reason. It's not troubles in vain. He doesn't say you have difficulty just because there's difficulty. And difficulty doesn't do something. He says, oh, no, no, no. He says, thelipsis. He says, this word, it produces something. It, it makes something. It births something in you. How many of you have ever run a race in here? Anybody? Okay, a few of you. Okay. How many of you ever run when you were chased? Anybody? Some more hands, man. All right, you're my people. I'm with you. I've been chased too. Yeah, man. So back in the day. Anyway, so maybe now sometimes too. I don't know. But anyway, the ellipsis, he says that this tribulation produces, this word here is perseverance, right? 
hupopene or hupomene is the word in the Greek, humpopene or hupopene, however you'd like to pronounce it exactly. What's this word mean? Well, it's a talking about steadfastness, right? It, it, it's talking about an endurance. Why do we care about hupomene? Why do we want that? Well, some of you mentioned you ran and some of you mentioned you were chased. I'm going to group you together for a moment. It doesn't matter the reason, right? And just bear with me. Okay. Sometimes I like to, you know, I, I can get out of shape like anybody else. You know, contrary to what people believe, this is about 5% of what I do. People think pastors, you know, you leave, you go home. We just go eat bonbons. I don't know what you think. Maybe we're sitting in the other room somewhere. No. We're right on the front lines. People are hurting every day. People are coming in in crisis. We're ministering. We're taking the word of God. We're bringing it. We're not just staying here. We're going out with it. We go into the communities. We do everything. Okay, that's what the pastors here do, right? That's what the leadership here does. That's what the staff does. We're available. Well, part of that is you do sometimes sit at a desk because you're, you're reading and you, you spend a great deal of time doing that. Well, sitting at a desk, I don't know about you, but you get over 40 and everything starts to get a little tight. You know, a little, you know, like you, after I make you sit here for an hour, right? Some of you get up and you're like, oh, there's the blood again. You get the feeling back in your legs. You're like, all right, you know. But, um, oh, Lord, forgive me. <laughs> Where I go with these, I don't know. Anyway, so the reality is you turn around, though, and you start getting the blood flowing. And, and then you go out, and if I said to you, please run a marathon or please run a, a you know, a mile. Some of us might drop dead or think we would, right? Because we're out of shape. Not you, me, of course. I'm out of shape. So I said, you know what? The staff here was joking around and um, we like to tease each other a little bit. They kind of came in one day or one of, I think it was Pastor Bill or one of them or Steve, I don't remember. They came in and said, hey, you know, um, Pastor, you you know, exercise does profit. A little, but it, but it does profit. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we we need to get in shape. You're right. So I start getting on this elliptical. You know what those are? Yeah, these contraptions. They're anyway. So I start doing two miles on this thing, this torture thing. Because I mean, what do you do for like 45 minutes? I'm like, uh, you know. So now I obviously I put on the teachings, the Word of God, and I listen. And okay, I'm run. So I'm doing this two mile thing, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You, you're, you're unlike me. You actually exercise. You know, praise the Lord. So you're in good shape, or you work in your garden, or you're getting out and you're doing things. All right. So you're doing this two miles. If I came to you and I said, okay, you just did two miles. Now I want you to do 20. You think you'd just naturally go, oh, okay. This was lived out. Well, three weeks ago, I, I took vacation. I went to uh, Florida. I had to officiate a wedding there. I was asked, invited to officiate a wedding. So I make my way down to Florida, and um, while we're down there, there's a little theme park, you know, or quite a big theme park. We decide we're going to go to a few days. But if you know anything about me, and this isn't your first time visiting, much like I study the word, I take things pretty um, intently. So I've got a plan. I've got a map. I don't know. I'm, I'm literally looking everything out. I've got triangulations. I've figured out where, cause we're paying to get in. We're going to see everything. You know, that's, <laughs> I guess I'm cheap. So I'm like, all right, we're going to do all this. So I've got a plan. So we, I've written this down. Okay. We're going to go here, there. Mind you, four boys and my wife in tote, the youngest boy, seven years old. Poor boy, by the end of the week, no, by the end of the four days, the kid's like dragging his like, he's no longer even got stamina. The Lord reminded me during my devotional time there, as he says, it's not a sprint. Life is a marathon. The Christian walk is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Paul speaks about it. We just happen to be in one of his epistles, letters. So as I was thinking about that, um, 
I proceeded to do nine and 10 miles a day or eight, nine miles a day at a pretty fast clip. So Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, nine miles a day, nine miles a day, nine miles, mind you, I was elliptical two miles and I was like, (gasps) you know, catching my breath thinking I'm in good shape now. So since I did two miles, I should be able to do yeah, bad. So I'm doing the nine miles. I feel good. My poor wife and children, I'm like, come on, you can keep up. Bad pastor, bad man. So I turn around and three or four days into it, I wake up one morning from the bed in excruciating pain. I got this numbness going down the front of my leg. I'm in pain. It's on fire. And I'm going, what's going on? I tore something. Yes, I'm the only man you know that tore something walking. So I tore at nine miles after I do this, right? But God reveals me something really important in that. And again, it's that idea of a marathon and not a sprint. And he says, do you see what working out actually did, though? It did produce something. My muscle, what is a tear? When we strengthen our muscles, what do muscles need to do? Tear, and then they grow back stronger. The fibers, it produces something, even my foolishness. So when we look at this and we think about troubles, that's what's in context here. He's telling us, much like a marathon, much like a runner, much like your foolish pastor running, walking nine miles, it's going to produce something. And what he says is it produces this endurance, this ability to keep going, to not quit, to not grow weak, or, or to not be able to continue to run the race strong. We get into our 60s and 70s, we can begin to start to know there's a finish line coming. We're in our 80s, we know the finish line's there. We may not be right next to it, but we know it's there. When we're in our 30s, do we realize that we're running a race? Do we realize there's an attention to this life? And it's about bringing the glory of God to every man, woman, and child? And that it's a race and it's deliberate. And it's through these troubles, some people lose jobs. Some of you, just this last year or two, you lost your job. Some, we just had a friend of ours, Finn, little baby, went to be with Jesus, two and three years old, died of cancer. This, this fellowship prayed for them, good friends of ours. Love the family. There's so many things we can look at and look at these troubles. Uh, parents, brothers, sisters, loved ones, troubles difficulties. And we can begin to think we're alone. We can begin to think much like Job's accusers. What did we do to deserve this? If we don't understand what Paul's trying to teach us, that in this passage, troubles come to everyone. But for the Christian, for the believer in Christ, troubles produce endurance to be able to win and run that race that you may be given that crown that you will then put in, at the feet of Christ. He says, and not only will that, that per- perseverance, it's going to per- produce something else called docume in the Greek. This idea of an approvedness or a tried character. Because that's what happens. You run, you do it enough, and eventually it produces a character in you that you realize there's a resiliency in Christ. You realize that even as weak as you may get, Christ never becomes weak. His strength is simply able to be seen by everyone. When they look at your lives and they see the things that you're going through, the troubles, the difficulties, they may be not saying it to you, but they're thinking, I don't know how he or she is doing it. How are they holding this together? Just in our community, 
We had a 22-year-old girl recently that just was in a car automobile accident and lost our life, right not too far from here. The family member being in Arizona, they called the Calvary Chapel. They know we teach the word here. They, they want us to come around the family. They want us to get the word of God in there to encourage because that's the only thing that's going to help. In the void of your heart is the word. It's the only thing that will ever help you whatever trouble you're going through. Jesus and Jesus alone. Well, as you look at this, for that woman, you don't, you don't think the trouble's right there? I mean, her daughter, the father, you, you, you try to wreck that, you know, wrap that around your mind for a minute. It wrecked you. Some of you divorce. You didn't ask for that. You've done all the things the right way. You've tried to live your life a holy life, but you, you can't be responsible for other people's actions, can you? Other people's decisions. But what do we see here? That God is saying that endurance is going to eventually take and build this tried character, which in turn is going to produce something very important for us. And we see it out peace again, this idea of hope, but it's not used in the same way as we read above. Now we see because of the way it's being put together that he's trying to tell us that this confidence, this joyful expectation, that it's going to produce a joy in you, that as you go through more troubles in life, there's going to be an underlying joy. Isn't the James, in the book of James, didn't he write that thing, that trials produce what? You should have joy that you count it all a joy? I thought the guy was maniacal until I finally read this. I did. What are you talking about? You want me to think my troubles or my trials are joyful? How about you walk a mile in my shoes or nine? Right? But see, James understood. You know, they used to call him camel knees because he, he had such swollen knees and scabbed over knees because he spent so much time on his knees praying and going to God. He understood a little bit about trouble. Look at the first century church and the martyrdom. Look at today, the 100,000 martyrs every year that are Christians all around the world that are dying for the namesake of Jesus Christ, coming to a town near you, coming to a country near you. It's a new year. We have men that were and women that were just elected into office. Some of them serving in the house, obviously. I don't care what party you're in. That's not my business. I'm here to teach the word and the word alone. You vote based on the Holy Spirit. You're not to be ignorant, though. You vote based on the Holy Spirit. That's our job. That's our responsibility. We, we represent and we bear the witness of Jesus Christ. But things... Economically, we're seeing things, Ezekiel 38, we're seeing things come through and fulfilled. You know, we just pulled 2,000 troops out. There's a vacuum of power opening up the opportunity for Putin to do what he always wanted to do, which is seize that power. Damascus, Isaiah 17, 1, we're waiting for that, you know, prophetically to be destroyed, to build that land bridge where the five nations are going to come in and destroy. I talked a little bit about it on Wednesday, if you want to go and listen to the prophecy up to date, up to the beginning of the service. Why am I bringing this all up in a new year? Aren't you glad you came here this morning? Oh, doom and gloom. No, because God is trying to teach us to be prepared. All the troubles in your life, 
if you, if there's a new administration that should come in, in four or five years, having the truth, notice that you can have anything else. They were just swearing people in on the Quran, by the way. You could turn around and you can have any other book and it's okay. Nobody has a problem with that. Certain Democrats, you can, you can bring up the Quran, you can put your hand on that and swear to that. Nobody cares because there's nothing in it that actually means or is worth anything. The Word of God is a holy book that is God-breathed. This is not a book that you just go pull from a, a library. or from, This is God-breathed. This is not something we just look at and admire from a distance. It permeates our soul and our spirit. It divides like a hot knife going through butter, showing us truth. It renews our mind, sets us right. It encourages us. It gives us exhortation. It tries us. It produces that patience, that endurance. It ultimately yields that hope, that confidence in the Greek. That's what you have. That's what you've been given. Don't take this lightly. 27% of this book is prophecy. For people that wonder, is it trustworthy? It's trustworthy more than any other historical book, anything else you have in, in your possession anywhere. There's nothing else like it. Go, to the, go look at anything. There's nothing else like it. Over 5,000 different manuscripts, copies, artifacts like that. Sometime we should have a, a memorial. Come on, we just go through canon. Just go through and explain to you how magnificent this book is. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. You want to see a miracle, open your Bible and read it and be the miracle as your heart gets transformed. Well, Paul is helping us understand that this hope, this confidence, this joyful expectation that's, that's going to be produced is now this hope, this what I just built in you, Paul saying through the Holy Spirit, this doesn't disappoint. Does God ever disappoint, friends? Never. Huh? Let's hear that again. Does God ever disappoint? Never. God forbid. Certainly not, as Paul would say. Of course not. And be, why did I mention 27% of the Bible? Because if I could tell you there's over 1,300 different prophecies that have happened over 4,000 years, some that are still remaining to be fulfilled. And it's at 100% 100% success rate. In other words, carbon dated, go back, look, know that this wasn't written a year that the, you know, some, oh, this is going to happen. And oh, by the way, I can read sort of the seasons and it's going to happen. No, 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 no. Most of these predictions or prophecies or promises are 700 years old before they happened. When, so let me ask you a question. Did you know what was going to happen five, 10 years from now? 50 years? How about 700 and every single one of them, over 600, I have a book just in my, of just biblical prophecies that have come through. There's nothing else. An MIT grad did a statistical regression on it. He said there's nothing else like it. It is 100%. He's not even a believer, by the way, when he was doing this. He says it's 100%. Normally you do a confidence interval. If you're familiar with statistics, 99%. 95 to 99% confidence interval. He says that blew that out of the water. For Jesus to have been born, did you get to choose where you were born or what city or where you came from or a bloodline? Of course not. You can't even, you know, change any of that. It'd be like you trying to change a star. You don't have the ability. You can't change even a hair on your head. Some of your ladies are like, watch me, you know, at the, at the beautician. But you know what I mean. You can't legit, you know, but 
The reality is this is true. I want to settle this in everyone's heart today. That's why we come and study under the word. Because we know what it says is true. So he wants us to know that hope, that confidence, it's built on nothing less than God's own name. If it didn't happen, God wouldn't be God. They're mutually exclusive. You can't have one without the other because he says that he lifts his word higher and elevates it higher than his own name. You, you can't have it any other way. You either believe it. There is, what's, what's the point? There is no more lukewarm Christian. Today's the day, no more. You either believe or you don't. You either follow or you don't. Don't play Christian, don't play church. We're living in the last days. He's separating the wheat from the chaff. He is, it's happening. And yet we see this church, a young church here, three years continuing to grow while other churches are fine. Why? Not because there's anything special about anybody, me, or any of the leadership. It's because the word of God, it's the everything. And people are coming in because they, they're hungry for truth and nothing else will do. They're not willing to compromise any longer because they know, even people that aren't believers know something's going on today. Things are changing. Things are not like they've been. We're living in, in, in definitely, you know, in different times. Such an uncertainty. I mean, the infighting we have in our country right now, even between political parties, has never been like this. The, the swearing and the cussing from the political, you know, Ponduits, never have we seen things like this. Open, just as though it's accepted the laws that we're changing in this land to redefine marriage, to redefine gender. We have never seen, there's never been a popularized, go back in your history and be a Berean, study your history. There's never been a culture that's ever legalized marriage the way we have for an entire population group. Not to say that homosexuality wasn't practiced. It was, but it wasn't a law of the land. You can go even back and read the rabbinical teachings to see how they even said, we don't see anything like this. Friends, if you don't realize the days, then you're not recognizing the seasons. We need to know what the days we're living in and we need to draw others to that truth and hope. Otherwise, we know where they're being given a life sentence to. And it's not with Jesus and not with heaven. So let's continue on here and... Uh, he says, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God, there's the equation, it's because of his love, has been poured out, that's echo, right, in the Greek, that's this idea of a bestowing or a distributing largely. Think of a large distribution. That's what he's communicating to us. He says, it's like, it's like the love of God just gets largely distributed. Boom, just lays it out. Where? In our hearts. By what? By the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Who was given to us. Now, he's going to go through and he's going to explain, you know, how does this work here? He says, for when we were still without strength, when we were unable, in other words, when did God save us? When did Jesus save you? When you arrived and were living a perfect life, free of drugs, alcohol, and pornography, and sin, and everything like that? Or did he save you when you were wretched and depraved? 
Most of us, it was when we were wretched and depraved, right? It was when I was in sin, when I was an alcoholic, when I was a drug, when I was messed up womanizing. That's when Christ got my heart. It wasn't when I was living the right life. It was when I was doing everything contrary, when I was an enemy to Christ. Well, isn't that a strong word, pastor, an enemy? Well, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Did you know that? If you're a born-again believer in Christ, you're not just friends with God. You're an enemy to Jesus Christ. You're an enemy to God. You're either one class or the other. You're either a, a beloved, a child of God. Everyone's a creation. You're either a beloved child of God or you're an enemy. Now, I know people on the radio, boy, Pastor, that's harsh. That is heavy. How can you say that? Because Paul said it. Hold your finger here. Look, look at verse 10. Just skip ahead for a minute. Verse 10. For when we were what? Enemies. We were reconciled to God through his death and son. That's not my words. Friends, don't get mad at me. That's Jesus. He told you. We were enemies. That, that was our position in him before we accepted Christ. I shouldn't say in him. Before we accepted Christ. Forgive me for the way I said that. He says that our strength, right? And he says, scares, well, I'm, I'm skipping ahead. He says, he poured out our hearts. The spirit had been given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's exactly who he died for. Can you imagine? Would you give your own son, your only begotten son, to a group of people that are going to mock you and spit on you, to are going to basically zone out and not even be paying attention, and are going to ignore everything that's going on in the world you're living just because you can? Would you do that? Would you give your own life for somebody like that? We asked, I asked that a couple of weeks ago. You know what everybody said? No way. There wasn't a single person here and said, you know what? I take my only son. And I'd put him up on a cross, a, hor a horrible torture instrument, so that a world could turn around and basically spit on it. Whose name do they take when they say the name of Vain? It's not Buddha, right? It's Jesus Christ. Because there's power in the name, there's power in the blood. Well, we read here, he says. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. He's saying the same thing. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us that in while we were still sinners, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were complete enemies of God, he gave us what we wouldn't give ourselves or someone else. Much more than having now been justified, as if we've never done anything wrong, it's a legal term. He's basically saying we were guilty, but in our guilt, he's chosen to no longer see our sin. It's not that he forgets it. God doesn't forget anything. But he no longer looks upon it. He no longer sees the sin. As we'll read in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, he separated our sin from us. Who shall be sozo, that word is saved, Right? From what? What do we save from? Wrath. The wrath. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, and Luke chapter 3, verse 7 speak of this. Do you remember when John the Baptist turned around? Who was he speaking to when he was out and he was baptizing in the wilderness? The Pharisees and Sadducees had come out. They kind of came out from Jerusalem. What are you doing out here, John? You know, you're a crazy man. You're wearing this fur and the belt and the whole thing, and you're eating honey and locusts. What's wrong with you? You know, why don't you go get yourself a pizza over here? Huh? Do, you know, he's looking at him and they're like, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? So they go out to investigate. And you know what he says? 
He says, you brood of vipers. You know what that means? You son of snakes or you son of the devil. That's basically what he's saying to them. It wasn't exactly a warm welcome. It wasn't like a you're invited. You know, be our guest, right? He says, you son of the devil. That caught their attention. He says, who warned you to flee from the what? The wrath ahead. So we see it in the gospels, both Matthew and Luke. Turn in your Bibles to John, two books over there. Turn to John chapter 3, look at verse 36. What I'm going to be building for you is a point that this is not new. That this idea of wrath to come and the saving from the wrath is exactly what God has designed for his church. Because there are some today, we in Calvary Chapel believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. We believe we will be harpozzled out and the church will not be entered into wrath. But some people say, well, you just get that from 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. That's the only place you're, at, you're isogeting, you're misreading, you're mishandling the word of God. In which turn I say, listen to this audio teaching, <laughs> or, or I'm glad you're here with us this morning because now uh, I'm passing this on to faithful men and women that will be faithful to pass it on to others. So take notes here, please. Look at what he says in chapter 3, um, verse uh, 36 of John. He says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, right? He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. I think that's pretty clear. If you're a born-again believer in Christ, you will live if you're not a born again believer in Christ, you will not live. You will die, right? You will, have a, you will not have an um, eternity with Jesus. You will have eternity in hell. That's what it's saying. But the what? Wrath of God abides on who? On him. Who's him? The one that does not believe in Jesus Christ. The one that is disobedient. The one that is denied or rejected Christ. Are you with me? Okay. Let's keep going here. Let's turn to um, Ephesians chapter 5. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. A few books to your right, back from where you were. If you got to Galatians, keep going to the right. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. This is another one of Paul's epistles to the church he spent the most amount of time with in Ephesus. Let no one deceive you with empty words. But for because of these things, the what? Wrath of God will come upon who? The sons of obedience, right? <laughs> What's it say? The sons of disobedience. He's very clearly drawing a demarker or a delineation for us. He wants us to understand our gay, that's the word for wrath in the Greek. He wants us to understand who's going to experience this wrath. He's never designed it for the righteous. He's never designed it for the church. Everywhere we've been reading. But there's more. Turn to Colossians. Keep going over. Right? Skip the book of Philippians. Come to one more on the right. That's the book of Colossians. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3. Let's see, um, verse 6. Once again we see, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of, of disobedience, right? Now, while you're still there, look to the next page. In my Bible, I have something called the book of Thessalonians. I imagine you do too, right? Turn to 1 Thessalonians and look with me, please, at chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from what? 
the wrath to come. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Once again, God said that. Now, just in case we're confused, because, well, what if that's just a wrath? What if that's not like the wrath? Well, we already saw he gave us a word for troubles. Do you remember that? That, that word as we were reading back in Romans here? He told us that was what? Do you guys remember? He said troubles, and it was plural here, and it was thelipsis. That's not the word arge. The word arge in the Greek is wrath. Two different words, two different meanings. So he's made it very clear. We don't need to struggle with this. First Thessalonians, if you look at chapter 5. Now, before, before you get to chapter 5, if you read verses 15, 16, or 17, you would see one of the places where he describes or discusses his second coming or his coming again. We call that the parousia or parousia. If you want to look at that specifically, you can look at verse 15. He says, the Lord who had been alive and remain until the parousia, the coming, circle that in your Bible. That means coming, the parousia or parousia. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. We just read about that for feast days, for those that were listening sometime to October, maybe. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be what? Circle that word, harpazo. That means caught up. See that word there? Caught up. That's the word we get for harpazo. That's where it comes from. Uh, rapture, that term if you've heard it for, is actually Latin. It's where we get, or, or even Italian, rapizo. That's where we get that word. But the translation actually in the Greek is harpazo for that word. So if you ever want to point people, it's two different, it's one single, how do I say it? One simple passage with two meanings in it. So you can't confuse it. One is clearly saying a second coming. One is talking about a catching up. They're two different events. Okay? But if that wasn't enough, chapter 5 goes down in verse 9. He says, for God did not appoint us. Who's us? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church in Thessalonica. The church, the body of Christ, you and I, that are born-again believers. He says he didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain. So he's telling us what the opposite of that is. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're looking at this and you're reading this, you're saying, okay, but there's more. <laughs> we don't have time for a lot more, but we're going to go one more passage. Turn to the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. If you weren't with us at the time, I'd encourage you to go up to the website or even right now, if you have Hope FM, 100.3 uh, FM, you listen to the radio in this area, Reveal FM up in Maryland, uh, Jersey and DC, His Perfect Love, the radio ministry here. It's, we're on uh, every day. So Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. in our area. It's actually playing the book of Revelation right now. So maybe that's just a coincidence, right? No. God's too good. I love the way the Lord goes before us. He wants every single person to know the hope that lies within them. So if you look in the book of Revelation, turn to chapter 6. Why do we go to 6? Well, if you were with us and you were studying, and if you go up to the website, you can get the teachings up there. Meo tauto, if I said that to you. What does that mean in the Greek? Some of you have been with us. After these things. Where did we get that? Well, that was chapter 4, verse 1. Why is that so important? Because he's telling us after what things. Well, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, I know we don't have time to go through it, was what we call the church age, the age you and I are living in. It's when he's talking to the churches. And he's saying, rud your church and your life through the grid of Scripture. So he turns around and he goes through, and he basically lays out the seven different churches there, and he says, look, are you like the church of Philadelphia that endure? Or, by the way, we read Ephesus. Are you like the church of Ephesus where they left their first love? Their works were better in the beginning than it was in the end. This is what church and what's your life like? 
right? So he says, after these things, that's a clear delineation. If I give you supper and I say, please come over and join me for dinner. And after our dinner, we're going to have dessert. Do you expect me to bring dessert out with dinner? No. If I did, you would say, I thought you said after dinner. God's not grammatically challenged. He said, after these things, he meant after these things. Okay. So chapter six, where am I going with all this? Because chapter six is after chapter three and two. We're we're after chapter four, after these things. He's telling us that after the church, the church age, the church has been removed. Why are we removed? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter five, verse nine already told us because the church is not given unto Arge, wrath. So we know we're not going to be here. He's already shown us that. But who will be? Those that have rejected Jesus Christ. Those that have disobeyed. And what he says here, because who's ultimately the one, if you look in uh, verse 17, who's ultimately the one? Where's this wrath come from? Is it the wrath of the Antichrist? No, it's the wrath of Jesus Christ. Why is he arge? Well, he is because of the disobedience of man and woman, and he's given every opportunity. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, saying, you know, I'm not saying people won't come to salvation during the Great Tribulation. They will. There's multitudes upon multitudes, more than any could number. But you don't have to go through that. Just during the first seal, over a third, we have 7.4 billion people alive. Over 1.8 billion people are going to die because of the cataclysmic changes of this world, because of the water, the seas, and, and we don't need to be into that. We don't need to be here. We can be up in heaven in the mezzanines, man, looking down. God doesn't want us to enter into wrath. Why would he save us to then put us into the wrath? Why would he turn around and justify us and separate us with a legal term telling us we're no longer condemned under sin and then Give us the consequence of the wrath of God. He tried to save us from it. Not that we would go through it, but that we would escape it. And if you want to say I'm an escapist, yes, I am. I don't want to go through the great tribulation. I trust the word of God. And if God's promise is that I'm out of here, I'm out of here, man. And I'm praying for the trump and I'm praying for the sound of the angel and take me home. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen? All right, we're all, yeah, we're, right now, Jesus, even before we finish, we'll leave the teaching for the rest of the folks. You got enough there? They can follow along. They'll get, ra- you know, they'll get saved. God's going to do the work. He's going to send 144,000. But as we look here in verse 17, it says, for the great day of wrath has what? Has come. He, he says, this is the wrath he was speaking about in, in not only the two gospels and John, and then we read it in the epistle of Ephesians. We read it in Colossians. We read it in Romans. That was our passage today. And then he tells us here, that wrath I'm telling you about for those sons of disobedience, it's coming and it's coming soon. And now it's come. But the church is not here for it. Praise you, Jesus. Now, there's so many other places, at least four other places just in Revelation alone that repeats this idea. 11, 18, 14, 10, 16, 19, 19, verse 5 of Revelation. Just, we just don't have time. I'm already over for where I need to be. We got we to gotta pick up speed here. But, um, but you, you guys with me? 
that we have that security as a born-again believer in Christ, that victory. Now, what do we do with it? Well, he's going to tell us. For He says, for when we were enemies, because we were saved from this wrath, we were sozoed from this, we were reconciled to God through his or through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we have been saved, sozo. Now this word used here in context is speaking of a still future time because the construction in the Greek is still future. It hasn't happened. And we already just read that in Revelation chapter 6, 17, haven't we? We know it hasn't happened yet, this wrath. <laughs> I feel bad for the, 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 those that believe that we're living in the end, uh, not the end days, excuse me, we are, forgive me, that we are living in the millennial reign. There are people that believe we're living in the, you have seen nothing yet. This is still where the Holy Spirit has his hand and the church is still here. When he removes that, oh my, you don't want to be here. Nobody wants to be here. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our love in Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation, katalage, that in the Greek there. What that means is, and you love this, it's only used four times in the whole New Testament. It's a very unique and specific word God has given us here to let us know what has happened, katalage. And again, he only uses it for a place in all of the New Testament. And this idea of, and it says reconciliation. Do you know what this means, this reconciliation? It means a restoration to favor. Just think about that for a minute. We were restored to favor with God. Through his blood, we now have right relationship. So let that sink in for a minute. We are in favor with God Almighty. Therefore, now he's going to explain the how did all this work again, you know, the spiritual transaction, verses 12 through really 21. Therefore, just as though one man's sin entered the world, the death through sin, and death, excuse me, through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. What's he talking about? Remember my introduction I opened up with Adam and the first sin, sin that entered in? That's what he's referring to. He's now going to be comparing um, sort of Adam and the, and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And he's going to explain how grace abounds, how through one man's sin, all have sinned and sin propagated, but much more through one man's true fulfillment of the law and righteousness, the grace of Jesus abounds far more than any sin could. Just play that back in your mind for a minute. That through all the sin and past, present, and future and everything we could do, the grace of Jesus Christ abounds more than that. That's real love. He says, that it spread because of, of what? The death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. What's he talking about? Before you had the law, you didn't have the stop sign. If you blew through that, you didn't, you didn't know you were sinning, so you didn't have the stop sign. But, but the law was given, and we're now condemned. And we were always condemned because of original sin. But he's saying those in Christ... God has fulfilled the law, and by his nature of fulfilling it, he's imputed that to you and I. We gave him our sin. He gave us a new nature and salvation. That's a, that's a good deal. That's the best deal going. You know, we got a president in office right now that likes to make deals. He's got nothing on Jesus. He's got nothing on Jesus Christ. That is the deal of the century, of the, of the eternity. 
For until the law, until law, sin is in the world, but sin is imputed, and there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Again, 400 years before he even had a law. Even though those who had not sinned, he talked about that already in Abraham, that it was accounted, faith was accounted him by righteous, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type. If you've never seen typology used in the Bible, you say, I don't like typology, I don't understand it, circle it. You just saw a biblical example of typology. He's comparing Adam to Jesus Christ, and he was saying that Jesus was the fulfillment. He does that throughout a lot of the Old Testament. We see foreshadowings. Okay, a type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. He says, but I want you to understand the difference here. For if by one man's offense, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. You understand what he's saying there? He said, by one man, all was condemned. But by one man, the God man, Christ Jesus, all can receive and be saved. He says, it's not just for an elect or a group of people. He says, it's for many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. He says, it it didn't come the same way. There are differences. For the judgment which came from one offense, right, original sin, resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses, because there was sin after that, but it resulted because Jesus Christ gave us justification. He set us free. It resulted in being justified as though we'd never ever sinned before. For if by one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more through those who receive abundance of what? Grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as though or through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to Circle that, please. All men. God is not grammatically challenged. Everyone who will receive Jesus, resulting in the justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Sorry, for by his... For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, I love this, grace abounded much more. The gift of grace can abound far more than any sin. That's our gift. That's that's what he's given you and I. And it reigns. Sin reigns in death. It rules death for the non-believer. But for the believer, God himself, Jesus Christ says that, that, that grace reigns in our lives. And it's through righteousness to an eternal life in all time, not just a period of time, but always. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, grace reigns, but sin abounds. Well, this morning we're going to turn our attention, and I'd like to ask the, the worship team to kind of come up here right now. We're going to we're going to turn our attention to communion and the grace that does abound much, much more. And it's in light of what we just read in Romans. I mean, why do we celebrate communion? Why do we gather together? And I, I know some of you are going, man, Lord, there is so much here. I want everybody here to understand communion is for the believer, and it was a command 
and obedience. It wasn't something we get to decide whether we'll do. It was something he commanded the believer to do in obedience. In my notes, I put, you know, we're blessed, but we're blessed because we're forgiven, right? We have an understanding, as it says in Psalm 103, that, that as the east is, or excuse me, as far as the east is from the west, so far he removed our transgressions from us. That's what our attention's called to. That's, that's what we're looking at. Can you guys say amen? Amen. When I read this passage in light of the Lord's Supper, it reveals that there's so much more given through our participation in communion than I think most of us think when we, we look at the truth of it. I think in turning your Bibles to, to Corinthians, because that's our passage, Corinthians 11, we're going to read four verses this morning. But I bet you, as we read these four verses, there is so much in communion of truth that we have never, ever seen before. That we've never realized what God was trying to communicate to us. Communion is a beautiful way, a great way, of declaring God's power. His his power in Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And really, all that he did through his new covenant that was ushered in by his shed blood. You know, just as we read in the book of Romans. I'm going to read this for you right now. And I want us to really take time here. As born again, I want us to take time to, to understand what we're reading. Selah. Let it settle. Let it settle in your soul, in your spirit. Don't, maybe you've come to communion before. And, and look, I'm not, I'm not blaming. Maybe you've gone through the motions. Don't go through the motions anymore. God wants to show us something beautiful through this. So much so that he commanded it. He told us, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took a cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, he said, in my blood. This do as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's, what? Death till he comes. Just think about that. Four verses but jam-packed with so much. The first one, obedience. Christ obeyed his father willingly going to the cross in Calvary to make us righteous before God. Do we take that, do we take that for granted? Does that not mean anything in our hearts? Thanksgiving. Jesus, our Lord, gave, gave his life. He was without sin who became sin for us as a propitiation, as a substitute for you and I. We already said we wouldn't do that ourselves, nor would we give our children. But he did it a payment for our sins, past, present, and future. It's that gift of justification, of grace. Power. Do you see the power in these passages? Christ's blood allows us to seek forgiveness and restoration of fellowship. 
what was once broken has now been restored for all of eternity. Through God, through the cleansing of the power and blood of Jesus Christ. No condemnation. Most of us here get attacked on a daily basis. Christ's blood frees us from any stain, any shame, any disgrace that people or even the enemy himself may try to condemn us with. We are free and free indeed. Unconditional love. Christ proved his love for us and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, our very teaching today. Grace. Communion is a reminder of how we are proclaiming the salvation is through Christ's blood and not a result of our striving. Purity. Do you see the purity in the holy sacrifice? Communion allows believers to examine their hearts. That's what, we're, that's what we ought to be doing now. Not only examining our hearts, but asking Christ to, Christ to examine our hearts. Examine our minds. We pray and ask for God for purity, for holiness, to be pure that way. To look at our motives as we talked about earlier. Fellowship. <laughs> look to your left and look to your right for a moment. Look at each other. Go ahead. Nobody's going to bite you. Go ahead. Look at each other. You guys are like, hey, you're there. I forgot. My, my butt's asleep. I didn't know anybody else was here. Communion. <laughs> Communion brings, some of you are like, yes, I have numbness. Communion brings us into eternity. Right? What do you mean? It brings us into the unity of fellowship. This is a unity of believers, a gathering of believers, allowing us to identify, allowing us to associate, right? Allowing us to affirm the truth of Christ and his gospel. That's what you're doing by just being here. By sitting in communion, you're affirming that truth for others to see and for us to be encouraged. Rejoice. We read it twice today. In our passage, we rejoice. The, swords, the Lord's Supper allows us to rejoice in the Lord's great victory in advance of all of life's troubles. Remember that passage we read about troubles, troubles and troubles? We have victory over it all. We celebrate that today. We celebrate that in this memorial, this communion. We acknowledge you reign. And it's all done. It's been paid in full. And we believe that. And then in our last verse of four verses here, verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, the second coming. Communion is a means of remembering. Isn't that what we're doing here this morning? We're remembering that Christ is going to come again in power and total victory. That's what we remember. That's what we celebrate. His death, his burial, his resurrection, and his victory. That victory that you and I have already been given. While we may not see it fully through justification, sanctification, and glorification, it's been already given to us and given to our account. We're just simply learning to experience it. And we won't see the fullness of it until we are with Christ face to face. Communion is to be a regular part of our worship. We're going to worship here in a moment as the elements are handed out. It's important. We're going to remember God's love for us. 
that while we were sinners, while we didn't love him, he loved us, didn't he? You don't go to the cross, you don't go to Calvary without loving a world that's dead and depraved. Will you join me this morning, Lou, in asking the Lord to renew, to help us realize, and to recommit our lives to him? You know, like I said, sometimes I think we go through communion. Some of you are like, Lord, it's, it's been an hour. How much longer will this man go on? But you know what? Friends, you're going to spend all of eternity worshiping God. You're going to spend all of eternity learning about Jesus. There are men and women in China right now that are giving their lives to be in a room with a 60-watt light bulb for six to eight hours just to get through a book because they know it's the only hope they have because if they're caught, they'll be decapitated. Their wives will be raped and murdered. This is real. The stakes are high. We don't go through the motions. I'm not saying that to make you sober-minded. I'm bringing the reality to what Christ and his word has brought to us. And if we're not convicted and or exhorted by that, then what are we doing? Are we disciples of the living God? Are we roommates? Are we in the timeshare business? A little bit here, a little bit there. Or does he own all our hearts? We need to pray that God, that we faithfully declare the Lord's death through his gospel till he comes again. That's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask the worshipers to lead worship. I'll ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to hand out the elements. I'll ask that we please take together, okay? But after worship, we'll pray and then we'll partake together. I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward, please.
told us that his body would be broken for you and I for the remission of sin. As we read in Romans today, even for a people that would reject him, that would spit in his face and deny his even very existence. But because of his love, And no one forced him. He went to that cross. And he said that through his shed blood, the blood of the new covenant, a covenant that he would establish that would bring us in favor, reconciliation as we read today, favor, God's favor, bringing us into favor with him. And it's through that shed blood and that work on Calvary that you and I as born-again believers today Receive the gift of grace, the gift of love, and the gift of hope. And it's in that that we partake and we remember together and we proclaim until he comes again. Because he's coming again, friends. Let's partake together. God, we pray just as we did earlier that... And I invite everybody to stand and pray with us, just as we did earlier, Lord. We ask that you renew, that you realize, and 
Lord, you help us to realize, sorry, Lord, and recommit our lives, ourselves to you, Jesus. God, I don't want to make an assumption, just as you've told us not to, Lord, to make an assumption that everyone here is a believer or everyone on the radio, Lord, or online that's watching this right now, Lord, knows you. But God, you prayed a, you paid a great price. Father, you sent your son that we may be redeemed. And Lord, you made that available to everybody, rich, poor, indifferent. You did it, Lord, because you knew there was no other way. Lord God, I today want to make that invitation to your body here. And I'd ask if there's anybody here this morning that has not received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, or I'd ask even online if you're watching or listening even on the radio. If you have not asked Jesus Christ and you want this hope, if you want this love, if you want this communion, this favor with God that no one and nothing can rip you out of his hand, that, that you won't be given unto the wrath to come, but you'll be set aside and set apart for Jesus for eternity with your brothers and sisters. If that's what you want this morning, if that's your desire of your heart, I'd ask that you pray this with me right now. And I'd ask that everybody bow their heads and keep their eyes closed, please. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a Savior. Jesus, not only did you come to save me from my sins, Lord, Lord, you came to be my master and my Lord, that I would surrender my life and be guided by you. Lord, that you would never let anyone or anything rip me out of your hand. Today is the day of salvation. Today, Jesus, I give you my life. Today is the day, Lord, I no longer try to do it myself or strive. Today, Jesus, I call on you as my Lord and Savior, and I ask that you would come into my heart and live with me forever. God, I pray that you would, as you said in your psalm, remove my sin, no matter what I've done, Lord, no matter how bad it's been as far as the east is from the west, and that you would see it no more, and that you would give me that righteousness, Lord, that you alone possess, and it would be given to me now, and that I would be a child, a son or daughter of the living God. Jesus, I ask you to do this in my heart right now, God. I love you, Jesus. Again, I'd ask everybody to keep your heads bowed. If you just prayed that prayer here this morning, I'd ask you just to raise your hand. and I want to get a Bible into your hands. I want to talk to you about discipleship. If you're online and you did that, I pray you'd write in on the I am thing. If you're near a phone, call the church office right now. We want to get a Bible. We don't want anything from you. We want to give you everything, and that is the discipleship and love of Christ. You can put your hands down if it was raised. Lord Jesus, for your body here, Lord, as we've come into full surrender, Lord, we pray right now for your blessing. Lord, as you told us in number six, a blessing that will be given unto your people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face so shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you perfect peace. I pray that the name of God be written upon you 
for you alone are his and he alone is yours. I pray that blessing upon all of you now in your holy name, Jesus Christ, through your power and blood. We pray, Jesus, and all God's people prayed. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good day. And again, if you prayed that prayer, I'd ask you to come up. Um, want to get a Bible in your hands and um, uh, love you. And we'll see you tonight for Sunday night prayers. The Lord should lead at seven.